I, I said this to you before, but this is the metaphor of my mother. And I think a lot of people can sort of relate to this for their own lives, but this is how I describe my mother. And now imagine being that person for 78 years, mm-hmm. which is when you're in school and you're a kid and you're at your desk in whatever class and you're leaning back on the back two legs of a chair and there's that second that you think you might go over, you know what I'm saying, when you catch yourself. My mother mm-hmm. lived in that moment, I would say, for 50 years. And I'm, and a moment of panic. Oh, what if somebody, what if I lose the, what if I don't pay the, what if the electric company, I mean, we were literally taught as kids how to get the, to answer the phone and convince the electric company to give us more time. Oh, like literally. As how, children. how, what was your, I mean, what did you have to say? About like, no, my mom's not home, but she said that you might call and she said that she went to the bank and blah, blah, blah. I mean, like a whole script, a script to like lie to it, like utility companies. Hey friend, welcome to I Swear on My Mother's Grave, a show that's part memoir, part conversation, and in the case of today's episode, part Katherine Hepburn. More on that in a minute. I realize that this season so far has had a lot of maternal love and some tear-jerking moments. It's had a lot of people experiencing real genuine grief and missing their awesome mothers, which got me thinking that it might be time for a different type of motherly story. If you are a regular listener, first off, I love you and thank you for supporting and following the show for three seasons. You rock. You know that even when we tackle heavy topics, this show needs its moments of levity and laughter or else there's no place for that heaviness to go. I believe truly as humans walking around the earth, we have to find humor inside complex emotions and heavy topics or we might implode. It's just too much to carry. And that brings me to today's guest. If anyone can make a pathologically lying mother with lifelong financial troubles, unmedicated depression, and someone who never lived up to her potential funny and sympathetic, it will be Mitchell. He was born a natural storyteller. Mitchell is an incredible actor, comedian, circus performer who grew up in a Jewish home in Rhode Island and now lives in Chicago. In this episode, We will talk about how his bingo gambling mother never cleaned her stove, how she lived on Winston cigarettes and Oreo cookies, taught her children to lie to the electric company when bills were due, and married an alcoholic. We will talk about how his mother lived with undiagnosed depression for most of her life and how everything wrong with us is our parents' fault, but it is our responsibility to fix it. Mitchell said that his mother believed that if it wasn't in front of her, It did not exist. She couldn't see it. And it was clearly for self-protection. So before every interview, I do a mic check with my guests and I ask them to tell me what they had for breakfast. It's a standard boring radio mic check that I had heard other producer audio people do. You ask your guests to talk for a little bit about what they had for breakfast and then you listen back to the audio to make sure you're good to go before you press record. My interview with Mitchell was recorded in 2022 in person and just for fun. I asked Mitchell to do his Katherine Hepburn impression for our mic check. Yeah, this is Mitchell Fain.
Hillary, I want you to go to the office and start your motor. And I want you to go into the office and I want you to remove everything. And I do mean absolutely everything that would subsequently remind you that you, you had ever been there, including that blue thing with the bulbs that you seem so fond of. And then, Hillary, I want you to write yourself a check for $5,000, which I feel you deserve. And then, Hillary, I want you to get permanently lost. It's not that we don't want to know you, Hillary, although we don't. It's just that I don't think we're really the sort of people you can afford to be associated with. No, don't speak, Hillary. Just go. <laughs> That's amazing. It's a great speech. What's it from again? I guess it's coming to dinner. Ah, yes. It's so brilliant. Start your motor. Hillary, I want to... $5,000, which I feel you deserve and get permanently <laughs> lost. I love grabbing the... Oh, God, it's so it's so good. She's so serious. She's like, I, I want to tell you something, Hillary. I want you to go to the office. Start your motor. Uh, it's, I so need to good. see it again. It's, it's been a great. long... I'll send you that clip. Because you can okay. find that clip because it's like, it's a perfect like minute and a half monologue. Did your mom, I'm just going for it. Uh -huh. Did your mom like Catherine Hepburn? My mom loved old movies. Mm -hmm. She liked Westerns. My mother loved Alan Ladd. What's, who is that? Exactly. My mom <laughs> is, my, we would deep cut as far as like old movies in my family. So my mother liked, her favorite actor was Alan Ladd. And Alan Ladd was a, very pretty male star, and he did a lot of westerns. Most famously, Shane. Come back, Shane. He was Shane. And she loved him, and she loved... Well, she just approved of my love of them, it, really. I mean, all my, all my aunts did. I mean, you know that you're like... You know that your aunts have clocked you, and your mother and grandmother went like you're outside playing like a, just a regular kid on a Saturday afternoon in the backyard, and your mother yells out the door, Mitchell Ida called and said, hello, Dolly's on at three. <laughs> you know your family has clocked you. <laughs> they know. They're like, they know everything. They know. They know everything. <laughs> and you know, before we dive into my mother's Mishagas, Jewish family. What's Mishagash actually Mishigas mean? Mishagash means craziness. Craziness, oh, thank you. But it can be like, so-and-so is Mishugana is crazy uh, -huh. uh this is mashugi this thing is crazy like this is a crazy there's a craziness going on or mishigats is craziness this is Mr. this is mishigats this is craziness ah. that's my yiddish lesson yeah today. thank you this lutheran is grateful i mean i've heard the word so much yeah, but yeah. i go it's one of those words that has almost become part of american slang yes yeah i I'll, I'll probably throw out several yiddish words because that's just the way i talk about your family's about Michigan. my family specifically. Michigan. I mean, here's a here's a quick story about my my mother and my grandmother. That is just a funny story. My grandmother used to say to my mother all the time, Millie, which was my mother's name, Millie, gay cock and off and yam, and gay cock and off and yam, literally means go shit in a hat out at sea. But what it really means is go go fuck yourself. Can I swear <laughs> on this? Yeah, you can swear uh, on this. It basically means like go. Oh, Go fuck yourself, Millie, please. That's what my grandmother used to say to my mother because my mother was so full of crap. Mm -hmm. It wasn't my grandmother being aggressive or a bad mom. My grandmother was <laughs> top notch, but just like, Millie, please, get cocking off and yawn, please. And did your mom ever say that to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we would laugh because we knew what it meant. <laughs> she, she'd think we didn't know what it meant, but we'd be like, please. 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 I'm going to be an actor someday. I'm learning Yiddish. Come on. I'm soaking it all in. <laughs> Go shit in a hat out at sea. I mean, you know, the, it's interesting because my grandmother, Bessie, was my mother's mother. Mm -hmm. It was one of those women who was raised in a time where Jewish women, women in general, and I'm speaking specifically of Jewish women because I'm 
I come from a Jewish family, had zero power. You had your only hope was to either be from a good family or marry into a good family, right? And your only job as a mother was to raise your daughters to marry into marry men who would then take care of them. You know, there were, you could even get it. You know, bat mitzvah is like a new concept. Mm-hmm. It's not like it wasn't like a thing. So my grandmother, her parents came from Russia. My you know my great grandparents uh, and they're very poor and you know they were just. Russian, poor Russian Jewish immigrants. And so my grandmother had my mother in 1935 and then another daughter after that and got, was divorced by 1940, which, you know, was shameful mm-hmm. back in the day. And suddenly she had to raise her two daughters and she also ended up having to raise her two younger sisters and her her older brother's wife and daughter, my grandmother all took care of. I have a dog. Right. That's it. Right. You know, so, well, if my grandmother was tough, guess what? She had a lot to do. Now it's all fit, you know, it's all hindsight. So, so I think that she didn't want my, she was culturally mortified. Now I didn't know this growing up because I thought my grandmother was the tower of, I mean, just the tower of power. She mm-hmm. was the matriarch. If, if she said show up on Sunday, you showed up on Sunday. <laughs> you know dressed she, up. She was a classic dressed. We, we, we were to be dressed, but not in this way that felt oppressive. It felt like fun. Mm-hmm. She was like, oh, going Bessie's. In retrospect, I think she felt a lot of cultural embarrassment of having failed at the one thing. And I don't think she was able to look and say, what a successful life I've, mm-hmm. I've raised all these human beings on a dress seller's salary. She worked at a sort of a exclusive ladies dress shop in downtown Providence when that mm-hmm. used to mean something. And I don't think she saw that as it turns out. I found some letters after she died. And I, she felt a lot of cultural shame mm-hmm. about being, you know, the stereotype of Jews and, and being good with money and you know, mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. the horrible stereotypes. I mean, the like. What did this, she say in those letters, or who were they to? She, she was to a friend who had moved to Florida, and she kept in correspondence with her. And we, they were sent to us after my grandmother died. This one saying, "Well, maybe you'd like to read your grandmother's letters." And mm. it was myself and my godmother. I know I'm Jewish, but I have a godmother who is my mother's first cousin, and my bestest, bestest friend in the whole wide world from the second I was born. She was my godmother. She was only 13 when I was born, but we Mm -hmm. were close until she passed away, unfortunately, about cancer. So we got these letters and they expressed such regret and such, she talked so much about um, how she didn't accomplish anything, Mm -hmm. how embarrassed she was. And she, you know, she didn't make a good marriage and how her daughters were divorced, divorced, like me and my mother, my aunt Miriam. And she never remarried? No. No. No, I, th- I remember having a boyfriend at some brief period of time when I was a kid. So I think what she did was she overcompensated with my mother and her other daughter about letting them know how poor they were. And I think she worked very hard to make sure everybody thought that they weren't. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think it spoiled my mom. I think it spoiled my mom. And then if we're going to deep dive, there was a a sexual menace in my mother's family, my grandmother's brother. And I know fact for a fact that he was, that he was sexually assaulted his daughter, mm. who was my godmother, which I didn't find out till many years later. And then I look at my, and I, and then when I, once I found that out, I started to look at my mother's behavior and some of the other women around that age in that family and their behavior is, 
I mean, I don't know for sure, but the trauma, mm. my mother, we might as well dive in, right? My mother was a pathological liar among many things and she had a gambling problem. Mm-hmm. She married my father who was a violent drunk. Mm. I mean, she had a lot of like, she had, she had a lot of behavior that was wildly self-destructive. What does it feel like to say that right now? You just said all of that in one sentence. You moved from some abuse, right? Yeah. And then you said, we're going to deep dive. Yeah. So there's just Dana. I'm kicking my leg at him. You can't see yeah, me, but I'm going. She's gesturing with her leg. It's very powerful. <laughs> no, but like, what does it? F- and again, it's probably a story it's, and a phrase you've said before. You've it has. S- I'll tell you what it feels but like. But to say my mom's a gambler, a pathological liar, and she married a drunk. And she married a violent drunk. A violent drunk. To be honest with you, now that my mother's been dead since 2014, mm-hmm. and having thought about this and having, having, you know, discussed with my own therapist and stuff mm-hmm. like that, it does make me have much more empathy for my mother than I did when she was alive, and I didn't really connect all those dots, mm-hmm. you know? You've talked a lot about forgiveness. Yes. A little bit with me and yes. emails. Yes, I think we talked about this thing, too. It's like, and somebody... Uh, a, a dear old friend of mine said to me years ago when I was, my parents were still alive and this was many years ago, like 20 years ago. And I, I was, you know, in the heyday of my issues with my mother before I really set boundaries, you know, mm-hmm. um, before she, you know, this was years ago. And also talking about my father who I hadn't seen since I was 12. He just took off and we never saw him again. Thank goodness. By the way, he, he couldn't have left too soon. That doesn't mean I don't have scars from it or trauma, yeah. but how would you say bye-bye in the, in a Jewish phrase? Oh God! Oh God! I don't even—I don't even know the proper Jewish phrase of saying like "get." Yeah, the get fuck, fuck away. What are you waiting for? Just right. go. Bye bye. Stop telling us you're leaving. Just fucking go. I mean, you know, obviously, lots of issues around that, but not about his leaving. That—that—that that, that didn't happen soon enough. But I remember my friend saying to me that you only really resolve your issues with your complicated parents if you have complicated relationships with your parents when they die, because then. For real, your brain, for real, lets go of that tiny little part of you that's seven and still wants mommy or daddy to be mommy and daddy in the way that you needed or wanted them to be. And she sort of said this, you know, 20, 25 years ago, and I didn't understand it. That Because your mom was still alive? My mom was still alive. So when she said it, that part of your brain. It's, like, oh, go, yeah. it's always got, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh. I'm I'm gonna get I'm gonna get to a better understanding before that. I'm different. I'm different. I'm going to therapy. This whole thing, and she was right. My father died first, and like I said, I hadn't seen him in I don't even remember how long, many years before he died. I, but I still had dreams about him where he would show up, mm. and then they stopped immediately after he died. And my anger at my mother. I mean, literally, the last thing I said to my mother, she was in hospice. We were leaving. We were gonna leave. We we were like. My sister and brother and I all looked both looked, all looked at each other and said, "Do do she was unconscious? She was unresponsive. Do do we need to be here? Do 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 any of you need to actually be here at the at the moment?" And we were like, "No, we, we didn't. We were there. She was comfortable. That's not something that either any of us wanted or felt comfortable or needed to do." And we all went out to the car, but I forgot my backpack at the foot of her bed. So I go back in. So then I'm in the room alone with her. <laughs> You know, and she's unresponsive. And I, 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 I picked my back and I was just like, I got to say something, you know? So I just leaned in and I whispered in her ear and I said, listen, Mill, I know that we've been mad at each other for a very long time. And I just want you to know that I forgive you. 
and I ask for your forgiveness and I love you. And then I kissed her on her forehead and that's the last time I saw my mother. I think she died like an hour later. Mm. But by the time we got home, we got a call saying she had passed. Do you remember what your body felt like when you said that or when I, when I said that or when you I, left? Or? I, I, I felt, if you had said to me when I flew to Phoenix for this process, because my sister said, I think you need to get here. She was living with my sister and brother in Phoenix altogether. That would not, I would not have said, I'm going to have a quiet, private moment with my mother's unconscious body. That's not going to happen. But it, it just felt right. I thought, I think we've talked about this. I am not a religious person in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I am a religious, but I have a, I'm a spiritual person and I have a lot of my own, I'll call them superstitions because I think it's all superstition, but I have my own and they work for me. And I thought this has got to be some sort of sign from the universe that I, I forgot my bag here. Why would I forget my bag here? And now I'm alone with her. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I was proud of myself. I was proud of myself that I sort of like, even though she couldn't hear me, I let her, I let her off the hook and myself off the hook. Sometimes to be honest with you, I don't think she hurt me. I, I hope that she does did, but I sometimes, not, not a lot anymore, but sometimes I'll, I'll shudder when I think about how unhappy my mother was through most of her life, <laughs> because that's the forgiveness part, right? It's like, I can be mad at her for this and for that. And you, know, when you're a kid and your mother, the person who you're relying on because you're a kid and you don't know this options is lying all the time. Mm-hmm. Stupid things, mm-hmm. things that weren't mm-hmm. even like important, but also about really big things like paying her tax bill and losing the house and like big things and small things and gambling and lying. And is that all self-preservation for her as well? Or did- I just told somebody the story the other day that my mother used to whisper on the phone because she was never sure if what she was saying to the person on the phone was true. Was the same story that she had told in the room. somebody else right. the, that could hear it. Right. So she would People be like, Millie, I can't hear you. She's like, there must be something wrong with the phone. She <laughs> just, just whisper all the time. And it was a manifestation of, I, I said this to you before, but this is the metaphor of my mother. And I think a lot of people can sort of relate to this for their own lives. But this is how I describe my mother. And now imagine being that person for 78 mm-hmm. years, which is when you're in school and you're a kid and you're at your desk in whatever class and you're leaning back on the back two legs of a chair and there's that second that you think you might go over. You know what I'm saying? When you catch yourself, my mother mm-hmm. lived in that moment, I would say, for 50 years. And I'm, and a moment of panic. Oh, what if somebody, what if I lose the, what if I don't pay the, some, what is the electric company? I mean, we were literally taught as kids how to uh, get the, to answer the phone and convince the electric company to give us more time. Oh, like literally. As how, children. how, what was your, I mean, what did you have to say? About like. No, my mom's not home, but she said that you might call, and she said that she went to the bank, and blah, blah, blah. I mean, like a whole script. A script to, like, lie to, like, utility companies. I mean, I'm assuming, right, it's psychological. There's something else going on. There's also an issue of money, like, not having it. But we all know, listen, if you're prone to – people say money – this is my new thing when people say money can't buy happiness. I say, fuck off. I'll tell you what it does buy. It buys peace of mind, and peace of mind allows you to experience happiness when it comes by you. Yes. Well, that's why I feel like if if you're sitting on the edge of your seat and you're going to be at any moment, you can be kicked and pushed Mm -hmm. over, you'd think that she would then want to spend her life 
not almost falling over. She, she couldn't to, to, to stop the lying and they, to stop to, to pay the bills. She couldn't do it because because that you just hit the crux of it. She wasn't waiting for him to kick her over. She was doing it herself. herself sure, yeah. She couldn't stop herself yeah. from doing it herself. She knew there's no back behind there's her. There's no back behind her. And she kept doing it because she had gotten addicted to chaos. Because she didn't understand there was another way. Because she didn't believe that she deserved deserved it. I mean, all of those things that I can say in retrospect. We can look at a psychological profile of a person. But what it made for was. A woman who was very nervous all the time. I mean, she smoked like a chimney. The flip side is that she was very well liked. My friends loved her. You know, she was very charming. So complicated, isn't that? Oh, that's a so complicated. My people my loved, loved my mom. Her. Oh, she's so fun. She's so to, fabulous. When I started to come out to my friends about my mother being, and it was when I moved to Chicago and I moved away. And, you know, of course that happens, you know, the wild duck syndrome where you're like, uh, I'm sophisticated and you're all trash. <laughs> and, you know. Yes. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. It's like that trope. Yeah. Know, somebody goes off to college and they come back. They left and they were Stephen and now they're Stefan and they know everything and you're <laughs> just awful yeah. and provincial and mom. <laughs> and so I was kind of in that place too, right? And so... Yeah, I was like, I'm never going to get married and I would never go to a bridal shop if right. I did. Oh. And I totally just went to a bridal shop and I'm getting married. Like, the joke yeah. is I was like, and it's in the suburbs. I'm absolutely... And you just absolutely know. But I'm just, so different. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I was sort of in that place, but also like starting to realize that my mother was quite difficult and there were issues in the way of having a grown-up relationship with her and it wasn't just me being an immature kid or and how kid. did when did you realize that do you have an example i mean it happened during college i mean i knew i mean she was we knew i mean we knew as kids i don't know how to explain it like we knew as kids but as kids we needed to rely on her there was some hope that it was just eccentricity not that we had those words but like and so, like, for example, we, my brother and sister and I do the same. Of course, you can't see this on a podcast, but we would uh, – I have an older brother and a younger sister, but I've always been the emotionally brave one. And so we'd do this quick eye check whenever my mother would say anything where we just with our eyes, without just looking back and forth between Steve and Sandy and I, my brother and sister, in which we would, on, with no words, decide if what my mother was saying was true. Mm. Because oftentimes, if it wasn't, we still had to get our needs met. Like, hey, hey, Mill. We always called her Millie or, or Mill. We never called her mom. Because Never. She didn't respond to it. You would try it, and she wouldn't oh, turn around. Or... Tried it, mom, 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 hey, mom, mom, wow, mommy, milk. What is it, honey? I mean, like she wow. just couldn't hear it. I don't think she like was. I don't even think it was conscious. She literally couldn't hear it. I think she felt responsible enough to be anybody's anybody. So like, hey, mom, hey, milk, are you going to go food shopping? Because there's no, there's nothing in the house for dinner. Which was a passive aggressive way of saying, are you going to provide us food? I'm twelve. You know what I mean? Sandy's nine, Stephen's 14. Like, what's going on? And since she would, I, for example, she'd say, you know, well, when your Aunt Miriam gets out of, get out, gets out of her job, we're going to go shop. I'm like, okay. Hey, what if we, and Stephen, Sandy, and I would do a quick project, mm. like, that's a lot. What if we ride our bikes off to Bessie's house, my grandmother, and we have dinner over there? We'll just surprise her. And she said, oh, that's a great idea. I'll call and tell her you're coming over. Hmm. So as children, even if we didn't understand the magnitude of it, we understood that we had to check in to get our needs met. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, it was in college that I really started to understand that her limitations, like I went to college 45 minutes from where I grew up, maybe Where'd 50. Where'd you go? I grew up in Rhode Island. Right. So I grew up in the northern part of the state and I went to school in the southern part of the state. And the whole state is 45 minutes from top to bottom. What was the college? University of Rhode Island. Oh. UR high, as they like to call it, as opposed to URI. Good weed. And so, um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, I'd be in a show because it was, you know, the theater department, and she, it would take 
30 conversations, I'm exaggerating, but uh, the number of times I'd be like, all right, well, when is your show? Mom, it's, you're coming on Sunday. It's at four o'clock. All right. Well, I got it. I got a plan. I got like, literally, Millie, you could leave at 315 mm, and you'd, you'd be before there. the orchestra was done. <laughs> Why are we having this come? Why are you so freaked out about going 45 minutes from your house, which is a disaster, by the way, because she was not a homemaker. Unlike my grandmother, who literally had floors you could eat, you could eat, eat off, off of. Yeah. And her daughters were both, both a mess. I don't hoarder, my, not hoarder. Okay, just didn't clean. Smoked like a chimney. Walls were yellow. It's the house I grew up in. I don't think my mother ever cleaned her stove. Ever, ever, <laughs> whatever. So when we got old enough. It became clear, like. That was when we were kids, people would come over because they loved my mother and they loved coming over. But like, then we started to become embarrassed because we started to become aware of like, go to our friends' houses. Do you think some of that clocking in that you talked about that looking at your brothers and seeing if she was lying or not to get your needs met? You told me when we had drinks a couple weeks ago, you mentioned that you have a really good bullshit meter. Mm -hmm. So looking at other people, which is interesting as an artist too, that you can sort of see through other people's. 100%. lies or right it's true and i know it makes me sound like a, i know it sounds sort of uh pretentious in the in, yeah. in the real definition of the word i think like oh i know things but or you're psychic or i'm psychic <laughs> i don't think i'm psychic i think because i was lied to as a kid my meter for what's truth and what isn't truth is highly attuned and just today i was on on uh, foster beach with some uh young people from the show that i'm in Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous young people. And I said these words to this one young lady we were talking about. I said, oh, I'm, later this afternoon, I'm going to go talk about my, my awful mother or like mothering and stuff like that, mother issues. And she, she nodded with like, I, I, I see you, I hear you. And I was like, okay, I see you, I hear you. You're in the club, I, I get it. <laughs> she was just letting me know. Yeah. And I said, I think it's so important and it can happen at any age. It doesn't have to be, I, you know, I figured it out in my 40s, but I think if you figure out for real, that we are not what happened to us. Mm -hmm. We are what we do with that. And I think my mother just, what happened to my mother, whatever it was, her childhood, her her marriage, whatever, it became who she was. Her whole identity. Was this person who didn't, I, I joke that in my, that some family are passed down silver or property or, or generational. We were, we were passed down the idea that we don't get anything. You know, it was like what we learned in my family tacitly was that other people have stuff and we just better be grateful if someone invites us along someday. That's, that's the lesson we would. You were never explicitly told that. Nope. Nope. I remember my therapist, my first therapist, Susan, who I loved, my first therapist in Chicago said something I thought that really changed my brain thinking. And I think a lot of people feel this and they don't know that this is it. Susan, my therapist said to me, when someone grows up like you, you have an extra couple of steps. So you have to be given permission to imagine that you get to have stuff or have the imagination to do or get stuff. Mm. There's so many steps. Whereas if you grew up in a house that's more functional, more, you know, people are doing things, they're succeeding, successes acknowledged. And, and you know, the word college didn't even come into my house until I came home one day and said, am I going to college? Because my friends were like, where are you applying to college? And I'm a smart person who did very well in high school, even though I didn't go very often. So my friends were like, where are you going to college? I was like, oh. I don't know. I haven't thought. No one has presented Literally, this. 
Dana never thought about it. Oh. So I was just about micro. She's like, I don't know how you're going to go to college. And I was like, see what I mean? Like it was, it wasn't even a, mm-hmm. it was, it was a silent understanding that that just. Because she didn't go to college. No, I'm the no. proverbial only person in my family. For real? Of that part of my family. To go to Sister, brother, nope. My brother, my brother went for a little while, but school was not school is not for, yeah. my, for my my brother. So then, does anything you've gotten since then, like plays, jobs, partners, lovers, money, anything you've received in your life, you do you believe that you deserve it? On my better days. How about today? Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. 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 I mean, more so as I get older, of course. Right. I, I like the time. I say this all the time, once again, I'm doing visual graphics that people can't see, but like uh, if the time of the feeling of like, I don't deserve this mm-hmm. and to the t- end of that period of time when I feel like, okay, I deserve it, that space gets shorter and shorter and shorter as I get older, right? I still have that thing like, oh God, I hope you don't get found out. I call it the identity police tapping on your shoulder and you turn around and they say, I'm sorry, who exactly the fuck do you think you Mm -hmm. are? Mm -hmm. And the moment where I feel that to saying that's bullshit, that's just an old tape, that's just crap that I've been carrying around, it's, it gets, that conversation gets shorter and shorter and shorter. Which is good. But I carried that around a long time, you know? Yeah. This idea that like I was, that every, anything that happened to me was just people being nice and sort of taking pity on me, which I would say this is sort of a, not a transition, but like, I think a lot of people who grow up with shitty parents can become very narcissistic. We don't like to think of ourselves that way because often we're fighting against our narcissistic parents because my mother was narcissistic to the end. It was all about her. But I think sometimes when we fetishize our own pain and our own trauma and we hold mm. it so dear and so mm. preciously, we become the narcissist mm-hmm. ones because then it becomes all yes. about our pain and trauma. Well, and if your mom's whole identity was this thing that was crippling, right. then your whole identity is your the, taking on your mom's right. pain or like making it about me and the trauma that I went through. And then, then like you, even just making it about like how I stop being like my right, mother. Exactly. Right. That's its own identity. And it's still be, yes. that's its yes, own identity, yes, you're right. also has yes. nothing to do with me. Right. That's like another identity. Taking on her identity is not mine. Taking on being a reaction to her identity is not, not yours. Mine. And so I So think, is that kind of what you feel when you said like we only start healing once she passes? Yes. Because that part of my brain that could like uh, what Joan Didion calls magical thinking, right? The year of magical thinking. So good. Like this part of your brain that really that really believes somewhere that someday they're gonna say the thing that's gonna it dissolve all the little iron you know, iron thick blocks in you because of your parent. And that's, and as as irrational as that is, it lives, I think, until they pass. And then they pass and you go, I mean, it's only been since she's passed that I've been able to really, like I say, sometimes I shudder and I think how unhappy she must have been for so much of her life. I mean, she found joy, you know, she found joy in my, my nephew or my grandson and she certainly liked to play the slots. Yes. She was happy at the she was happy at the casino. My sister, because at some point, you know, you can't fight a tidal wave when they were living in Las Vegas together for a long time. I was gonna say, yeah, did she ever Vegas? I, I thought I thought that you told me this, but I was like, wait, did she get to Vegas or yeah, not? Oh, yeah. She lived in yes, Vegas. Yes. And once a month, my sister would give her $150 and drop her off of and she'd love club nickel slots. For like an afternoon? She or until it was gone. Oh my gosh. 
until it was gone. What did your did your mom ever talk about what that rush was no. like? She didn't even admit it. She never no no she never admitted anything. Dana nothing oh. never never. Did you ever ask her point point blank? What do you like about gambling? Uh, what or what? like what is the addiction about? What is I brought it up all the time? Never. Wow. She'd I, say I, I just, no. I just I like bingo. The slots I play slots. I play bingo. I mean, when we were in high school, we'd go out, and she'd say, "Remember to play my numbers." So we'd have to play her num her you know numbers in Rhode Island. You'd spell that N U M B I Z numbers. <laughs> play my numbers. <laughs> and if we forgot, oh the drama! Angry, angry. First we'd come home and she'd be sleeping on the couch because she just slept on a couch for thirty years. Wow. Uh, next to like her full denture set on the back of the couch, like just on the back, just sitting there. Am I allowed to laugh at that? I oh, can't. Yeah, it's fucking funny. Right. <laughs> Don't get me. Even even when she was alive and this was all happening, she was, it was goddamn funny. Yes, I mean, would, my I brother mean, and sister and I, not to be mean, but we would just howl like, <laughs> with the teeth on the couch, having like, you know, chewed through a, a, like a pack of double stuffed Oreos at two in the morning <laughs> and a, you know, carton of Winston's. Hey, there's worse ways Oh, there were worse ways to kill. I mean, the, her her slow suicide was Winston's and Oreo cookies. What were your mom's numbers, by the way? Oh God, I don't know. I wish I did. I've, I have to tell you something. This is this is no exaggeration. I have never gambled ever in my life. You won't touch it. Is it almost like I when your not, mom's an alcoholic, you sometimes don't want to touch yes, a drink? I do not. I don't. I don't go to the bingo. If friends no. want to go to the bingo, uh, but mm. though I do have to tell you about going to the bingo, but I won't. I don't play buy lottery tickets. Hmm. I don't like it. So I never gamble. Like I, I don't buy lottery tickets. I just, I just don't. I don't touch it. I see what a disaster it is. Oh, well, this is actually a joyous story. So my, <laughs> the women in my family, the old Jewish ladies in my family, not my grandmother, my, uh, my mother, my aunt Miriam, who was her sister, and then my great aunts, Ida and Dottie, who were my mm-hmm. grandmother's sisters. They went to the bingo at least once a week, mostly two, but at least once a week. Come hell or high, the bingo, and it was always in the basement of some of Catholic church in Cranston, which which where I grew up, which is a very Italian, uh-huh. it's like St. Rocco's or St. Bartholomew's or something <laughs> like that, St. Anne's or something, <laughs> just bingo. And it was always this basement with long tables mm-hmm. and, um, and a uh, like a, a, a refreshment, you know, like so we would be making hot dogs and hamburgers and, you know, like greasy spoon kind of thing. There was always some, and we got to, we, when we got to go with them, Oh my God, it was so fun. We should not have been in there. All that smoke. I mean, so much. Oh yeah. And you were young kid. Kids. But Oh God, I loved it so much because they'd give us a card to play. Of course we couldn't gamble, but we'd give, so I wasn't, you know, wasn't. Oh, the blotters. Did you get blotters? Oh, my mother played like 30, 40 cards at a time. Would she win sometimes? Um, Occasionally, but not enough to like. Right. Change our lives financially. I mean, it was always just throwing away money that we didn't have. Right. But God forbid the idea that she would miss the bingo or that bingo was the cause of any problems. But they all went together, this group, and I loved my aunts. Mm. I loved my aunts so much. Not my mother's sister. She was not my favorite. Bless bless her heart. But my great aunts. Ida, Dottie. Ida and Dottie were we got a Bessie, we got a Millie, we got an Ida, we, we got, got a Dottie, we, we got, got a Miriam. I mean, these names. Come on. I mean, you can't write this, right? <laughs> and so it's those are very good memories of my mother that she brought us. And she, Did she come alive? Like, do you she remember? Was very, yes, she was very yeah. funny. People thought my mother was a hoot. Um, she was very serious about her bingo. Mm-hmm. She was very serious about her game. She was good at Scrabble too. Here's the deal. 
I think, I'm trying to formulate this because I actually think this is sort of a philosophy of mine. If one doesn't use one's can, one's potential for intelligence to its fullest, it will come back and haunt you. And I think my mother didn't use any of her potential. And I think she was a deeply intellectual, or not intellectual, but an intelligent woman. She had an enormous capacity for knowledge. I think, ironically, despite the fact that she was so bad with money that she lost our house twice and then permanently um, never had money, I actually think my mother was sort of a mathematical genius. Hmm. But it never died on her. Because she could do large sums in her head. She could figure out math homework. She just could figure it all out and she had no education. She, I think she dropped out of school in eighth grade to get a job in a factory like everybody else in her generation. Wow. You know, it was like, yeah, world war. And she never worked um, or small like jobs everyone, here and there. Yeah, like everyone, yeah. oh, this gets complicated. So my father leaves. She doesn't ever send us a dime of, so think about this. She's now got three kids. She has the emotional maturity of a 14 year old. And she, she dropped out at eighth grade. She dropped out at eighth grade. She had no education. She has no. She didn't work. She worked as a kid, like in factories and stuff. Because if you're poor in Rhode Island, you work in jewelry factories. Because it, Rhode Island is the number one producer of costume jewelry in the world. Question mark? Question mark? But also true. And I don't know why that is, but Did, it is true. For real. For real. It's a big It's a big deal in Rhode Island, huh. jewelry factories. We're like, you know, you put like somebody solders a back onto an earring and then somebody puts those things into a little plastic thing that then gets hung right. on the thing you know, next to the register at a mall store. Yeah. All that all that work has to get some done somewhere. And it's That's done. coming out of Rhode Island. It is. Huh. And so my father leaves her and then she's got a nothing. And she started she started okay. She went to like a group to like, you know, maybe get some it's like a vocational group. Didn't really stick. She couldn't really hold a job. And so for the rest of my life, she sort of perpetuated insurance fraud, meaning that she would find some way, every job, to be injured and then collect unemployment and workers' compensation until it ran out. And then she'd find another job somehow. And then something would happen. She'd get hurt. And that was kind of what my mother did. All her life. How much money did that a mass. None. I mean, she was barely pulling it together. It was just literally to just get a weekly paycheck from unemployment or work miscomp. Oh. She had like a settlement. Like, yeah, I'm, thinking like a settlement. No. I'm thinking a settlement. I'm thinking some she, like big amounts. Part of her thing is like, I don't want a settlement. I just want to be able to collect while I'm, you know, through workers' comp while I'm, while I'm unable to get another job. And I mean, for years and years and years until finally she moved in with my sister and then she didn't have to work anymore. Because you lost two homes, you said. Well, the same house twice. The same house twice. rescued by my father's mother, which I found out years later. And then the second time when, after we had all moved out and she wasn't returning, the phone was, the the phone was out of service. And we're like, oh, she didn't pay her phone bill. uh, But then we couldn't get in touch with her at all in any way. And it turns out the city had shown up and said, hey, old lady, you got to get out. We've sent you like five years of letters saying, you got to get out. You don't own this house. You mm. defaulted on it. You never, you didn't pay your property taxes in like 30 years and you got to get out. Funny, the irony of it, because money worries was such a thing that made her, that exacerbated her, whatever her mental illnesses were. And if she had just fucking told somebody and didn't lie about it and got help, that piece of property, which was paid for, it wasn't a mortgage. She didn't, it wasn't the mortgage that she didn't pay. Right. It was taxes, yeah. And so the city just owned the house. But if she'd said, hey, 
at, at any moment to anyone as opposed to my mother had this brilliant mm-hmm. way of, and I say brilliant meaning her mental illness of if it wasn't in front of her, it did not exist. Yeah, she was that. sitting at the bingo in Phoenix talking to some ladies she just made friends with at the bingo and they, and they asked about her kids. She'd say, Oh, my son Mitchell's in acting. He lives in Chicago. We're very close. Like you, if you were that lady, you'd think my mother and I were besties. Besties. Because if it's not right in front of her, she, she couldn't see it. And it was clearly self protection. And like I can see it now, but now the damage is done. But the damage, this goes back to the thing I said at the beginning, which was like, we are not what happens to us. We are how we deal with it. So when I finally realized that the damage that I'm talking about, is is up to it's up to me. I, I say this all the time. In fact, I said this on the beach today to these young people. I was like, "Whatever is wrong in your life at this age is, in fact, your parents' fault. Good parents, bad parents, somewhere in between. It is their fault. That's how psychology works. Here's the catch. Unfortunately, for all of us, it's their fault, but it's always our responsibility." Even if our parents say to us, I'm so sorry for this laundry list of things that you've been carrying with you for your entire life. Mm-hmm. Every, if they were able to catalog every single slight, every single confusion, every single lie and go down and individually say, I'm sorry, I did this. It still doesn't remove the, the internal stuff that we have to fix ourselves. And everybody on the beach was like, go get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here, old man. Parents. <laughs> My parents are. Actually, no, that's not true. They, no, all, but, they all sort of went. Yeah, I'm sure they said, oh, he. Because the thing is. He speaks our, truth. What's well, our responsibility? Yeah. It'd be lovely. I know. If, wouldn't it be great? I want to give it to amends. Oh, I want to give it to someone else. Right? It'd be lovely if they could make amends and then we I don't are magically do it. washed yeah. of the stuff that yeah. we got from it. Insecurities. Oh, you know, that'd be great. I mean, there's so many things that my mother passed down. Like when I was a kid. My mother would say, oh, she'd introduce us, and this is my little one, this is my old, this is my smart one, right? Smart, and my identity as a kid was I was smart. I was, I was a smart kid. I was one of those kids who read before I started school. I don't know how. Like, nobody knows who taught me how to read, but I could read before I went to wow. school. Just one of those kids. I was a smart kid, you know? So, in fact, when I was in third grade, they wanted me to skip third grade and go to fourth grade because it was clear that I was sort of bored. And my parents, once again... It, they couldn't see it. So it, it, they just it was the absolute, it was an absolute no because it didn't make any sense to them at all. But so I was always this Mitchell, my smart ones, Mitchell, my smart one. My, and then when I got old enough, and I'm talking like eight or nine to have opinions about things. And let me tell you, I did. No surprise, surprise. Then, then I went from my smart one to Mr. Know it all. Hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Then I got resentful. Like you created. Resentful, a little bit scared, or jealous, of me, jealous, but also like, she wasn't living up to her potential, which she you said. And also, she knew at this point because I started clocking her lies mm. that I could call her out. Yeah. I remember a very specific time we were all sitting at my grandmother's house. There was weekly gatherings at my got my my uh, Bessie's house, just like all the everyone hanging out on Sundays and three meals and mm. fresh bread from the deli and all the stuff. And so I remember my mother said something sitting around the whole table. Everybody was there, and it was such a blatant, like almost ridiculous lie. And I'm pretty sure everyone in retrospect at that table of adults knew. What was it? It's something to do with my father. It's something to do with my, everyone knew my father was a violent drunk. You know what I mean? There was no way not to know. But she says to me, I I think I was like eight or nine. And I said, Millie, that is totally not true. Hmm. And then, oh, 
I had so much trouble just like afterwards or no, during during at the meal. I was told to leave, leave, get out, get out. I was like, but I, what? Mm. and I just thought, I'm just, you know it all, get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. So it got weaponized so that I couldn't call her on shit. Yeah. Oh, I'm just yeah. know it all. Yeah. I'm like, well, I don't know it all, but you did tell me I was the smart one. Right. You know, all of this to say too, around the idea of it's their fault, but it's our responsibility added to we are, we are not what happened to us. There's a lot of these things we're talking about that I can actually find now that they're both dead. She's dead since 2014. I realize have created part of my interesting life. Mm. My, re- my response to tra- the trauma of her created a person who can pretty much tell when someone's lying to me. And so I have amassed, and anyone who knows me who's listening to knows it's true, some of the fiercest, most loyal, most fabulous friends. Mm-hmm. I probably have a group of like 15 people that I would call my best friend and they're all, and they all know it. And I'm not being fickle and probably been friends with all of them somewhere between 25 and 40 years. Wow. And so that's partly because my mother didn't know how to make friends. Mm-hmm. I think her. That's so sad. It's so. Isn't it's that so, so sad? sad? Because people wanted to be a friend, and I'd watch her. Right. Over it the sounds years, like she was not yeah, follow through. People wanted her in her yeah. life, and she was enjoyable. Follow through. Same. My mom had a hard time keeping friends. Is that? I wonder what that's an indicative I don't know. sign. Of. And I would watch it happen. I'd see her have a friend, and they'd be cool. And I think, oh, good, my mother has someone to hang out that's not right. Her I mean, aunt. I think for my mom, some of it was shame around like getting sicker, losing the ability to walk, not looking as good, yeah. wanting to keep some of her addictions private. Probably, yeah. Yeah. maybe your mom didn't want people in that house. It was messy. She might want to go gambling with them, but she also that's her business. Kind of like, don't oh, yeah, be in my business. Yeah, maybe she definitely did not want her yeah. friends in the house. She hated it when people wanted to come to our house. Yeah, except outside because we had an above ground swimming pool, and nobody else in my family did. Anyway, it's a crappy old pool. Weird, Dan. I dreamt about that pool last night. What? I dreamt about what happened in it. Because everyone loves hearing about dreams. I'm kidding. But Rose has a whole show called "Get to the Part About Me," and it's it's about like nobody cares about your dream until unless you're in it. Am I in it? Yeah. But it is. But it was like this very sort of shitty pool. But you know, the inside of it was clean, and we whatever open it every summer if we could have, if my mother had the money to do it. And so people would come over and swim in the backyard, but she was very uncomfortable if anybody wanted to go inside. She didn't like, yeah. No. No, 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 no. Yeah. Because no, it, it was disgusting. Yeah. So I could be just like being embarrassed and, yeah, being but, but being able to keep friendships that I have, I have a lot of friends too. I feel like I have a really right? wealth of love and Same. longtime friends. But and I think it's, I, I learned discernment. But I work at it because yes. you have to work at it and you have to, and discernment about who you let I in. Think I think that's what I got from my mother. Yeah. Because I had to figure out how to get my needs met as a kid, I think I can now hmm. literally look at a lineup of people and go, no, 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 yes, no, 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 yes, no, 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 wow. yes. And n- no offense to the no's, but I'm not going to get probably when I, 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 I can't. I can't. And as a kid, that was really very true. And the the friends whose parents I connected with in the neighborhood and stuff, or in the neighborhood, my friends' parents who became my surrogate parents are very were all extraordinary people. And it taught me so much that I wasn't learning anywhere else. I do think, once again, I don't want to call them, I am going to call them gifts. I think from both my father and my mother, and like I've played the like, I got crazy parents game, and I always score very highly, mm-hmm. you know, in competition. <laughs> yeah. Because it's a competition. I, no, I lose I, place. 
in the conversation. Right, right. What, what what's uh, Christopher Duran calls it flirtatious exchanges of childhood trauma. <laughs> my mother beat me. My, Man, my that could have born. been the name of the pod. No, right? Yeah. Yes, it's brilliant. So the gift of my of some of my mother's stuff is maybe some self awareness is my ability to discern who's good to have in my life. So that's what it was as a kid. And now, because that skill leaked into my sense of discernment, I've surrounded with myself with people who are very good to have. And it's what Armstead Mopan calls logical family as opposed to biological family. Who says this? Armstead Mopan, the writer, he wrote Tales of the City. Um, he calls it logical family not biological family. Your biological family could be in your logical family, but your logical family is the people who it makes sense. I see that with a lot of my friends who are queer youth, or even, you know what, people my age who come from very religious homes or whatever, and they're still, still making excuses for their parents' homophobia, for their parents not fully accepting them, for their, all of it. And I'm like, not the gift of my, of my particular mother was I understood I get to, I get to walk away. Hmm. I do not believe, and this makes me sound horrible, but it's who I am. I do not believe in the myth of blood relation. Yes, we share same genetic. It means nothing to me if we're not compatible. Mm -hmm. If you're not a person who is good for my life, I, I don't give a fuck how you're related to me. I just don't buy it. I think it's a construct that has enslaved particularly women for many, 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 many years. You know, you got to take care of your I mean, yes, of course, take care of your parents if you mm -hmm. love your parents. But if your parents have done nothing to take care of you, or they threw you out because you're queer, suddenly now you have to take care of them? No. I, I just don't buy it. I, I just don't believe in that mythology. Mm. Logical family. People have, have make sense to have in your life and for you to be in theirs. Yeah. That's what I, that's, that's partly what my parenting taught me. And it's a gift because- I guess I'll just be braggadocious about it, if that's even a word. The proof is in the pudding. I have deep, 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 lifelong friendships full of honesty and challenge, and they're all still here, and I'm still here. So if 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 my way was not right for me, I'd be lonely and looking for people to connect with. But the opposite is true. Yeah. I don't have enough time in the year to see everybody that I dearly, dearly love. So for me, it works out. How do you feel, I know you've already told me your mom's name, and I always like to ask people their mom's name, which is usually what I do at the end. Yeah. But a part of me is like, I don't know if that's the question I want to ask you right now, but but I do want to know, when you say like, that's not for me, like that type of maternal, the responsibility, like you I just said. I think it's like maternal fascism. Yeah. Like genetic fashion. So thinking about that right now and thinking about Millie right now and thinking about all of that and that's your mom's name and how you feel about her in this moment, what comes up then for you? Because it's not going to be probably this cookie cutter it isn't. answer. I, I remember having a lot of fun. I remember laughing. I remember them indulging all of my, you know, all my things that I liked. Yeah. You know, Barbara movies and Judy movies. And, yeah. You know, I, I think about the fact that with because of her, my great aunts and my grandmother and my godmother are in my life. Thank goodness. Yes. I mean, you know, I tell these stories and sometimes people are like, how did you survive something like that? A childhood like that, you know? And the answer is I had these extended, this extended family of old Jewish ladies who were fiercely loyal and protective. Mm -hmm. They loved me 
unconditionally. So mm. I had I had that at the same time that my mother, my actual home life was quite nuts. So I also want to do that, Kevin. My life wasn't always a torture. In my house, it was pretty awful. Outside the house, when I was a kid, I had sanctuary. But then you bring all the trauma from inside the house through the rest of your life. So when I think about my mother, I think about the gift of her aunts and her mother and having chosen Robin as my godmother, who I miss every day. But then I go, I, I go back to that moment. If I really think about her, I, I get that moment of such deep sadness for her. Mm-hmm. She just was, whatever happened to her, whatever mental illness then exacerbated it or was caused by that trauma, she couldn't get past it. I mean, we begged her to go to therapy. We, you know, we, she couldn't get past it. And so she had no ambition and then succeeded in having no ambition. She, she didn't do anything and it, she folded in on herself, I think. She's a scaredy cat. Yeah. And I think about it and it's, it saddens me. My mother, I just think about how, how sad she was most of her life. I think my mother was probably clinically depressed for 60 years, you know? And so, Years of that, unchecked, unmedicated, with one awful thing after the other. I mean, who knows what my mother's diagnosis would have been. But as a result of her not getting diagnosed, we learned a lot of really fucked up boundaryless stuff as kids. Yeah. You know? What was her full name? Mildred Ardell Let Fane. Ardell A R D E. I have no idea what the fuck hmm. that is. And then Let L E T T is her maiden name. And then my father's name is Fane. Mildred. Mildred and Miriam. I have been putting off recording this closer for over a week. It's been on my list of things to do, and every day I find a way to not do it, to do anything else but sum up my thoughts and find a way to relate this episode to my life, to my story, to my own mother, because that's the show. But maybe that's the glitch. Maybe that's why I'm having trouble putting words to paper, because Mitchell's story is so not my story. I have sat on the mic with so many people for this podcast some amazing guests that you might never get to hear on this show because I don't have enough hours in the day to make all the episodes I want to. And well, because editors are expensive. Wink. But every amazing guest comes with their own set of lived experiences and vastly different stories of complex maternal grief. And even though I might say to them, oh, yes, that sounds familiar, or I can totally relate to that. I am always aware that my story is just that. It's mine, and only mine. And even if I can somewhat relate to a depressive mother story, because I can, and I understand the pain of feeling embarrassed and frustrated by a mother's inability or desire to get help in her lifetime, my pain is still so personal and specific, as is Mitchell's. And so sometimes even in the midst of connection and relating to another person, you are still alone in your pain. I always yearn to connect with my guests and laugh and make sure they're seen and heard, but I never want to say to them, totally, our mothers are the same, because that's a lie. And even the fact that I realized I hadn't featured 
a pathologically lying, addicted to chaos, and traumatic maternal story on my show, that was proof to me that maybe I was keeping myself at a distance from that perspective. Because no matter how much sadness I still carried around my relationship with my mother, I still had a lot of love for her and forgiveness, and maybe even more so after hearing someone else's story. In this episode, Mitchell said, you only really resolve your issues with your complicated parents when they die. Because then, for real, your brain, for real, lets go of that tiny little part of you that's still seven and wants daddy and mommy to be daddy and mommy in the way that you needed and wanted them to be. I have much more empathy now for my mother than I did when she was alive. And this, I 100% can agree with. Mitchell's chosen family and friends are such a powerful shield around him. I love how he's curated such a fierce, supportive, safe, and unconditional loving community of humans. It's inspiring. And one of his chosen family members and spiritual maternal figures is the Barbara Streisand. And before I leave you, I wanted to share a little bit more of our conversation. I asked Mitchell to tell me more about his love for Barbara, how it began, and to tell me about his spiritual belief in what he calls the Tao of Barbara. I'll talk to you soon. The Tao of Barbara? The Tao, thank you. Oh my God, what did I say? The Tao of Barbara? Tell me about this Tao of Barbara. When I was six years old, the very first movie I ever saw in a movie theater was What's Up Tacos with my grandmother, uh, my uh, father's mother, Ruth. And I remember three things. I remember uh, my bubby, Ruth, laughing so hard that she was wiping tears from her eyes. I remember a grown man laughing behind us that he slid off his seat. Slid off his movie seat, he was laughing so hard. And I remember seeing someone on screen that felt like home Hmm. and safety. And I didn't know who she was because I was six. Now, I'm sure I had heard her voice because she was popular and, but like on the radio or something, but I'd never connected with seeing her. And so I didn't know that I was gay. I didn't know she was a gay. I I didn't know any. I just was like, something is shifted, shifted Hmm. in my DNA. And so I have always been a lifelong Barbara freak. I mean, when I, you know, first got my own money, like if someone gave me money for like Hanukkah or Christmas or, you know, birthday, I would go to the record store and buy Barb. So, like, I'm the only seven-year-old with, like, Barbara Streisand's second album <laughs> singing, you know, anywhere I hang my hat is home in my bedroom with a towel on my head. So it's very attached to my queerness. But also, as I got older and really started to really love her and appreciate her, when I joke, I jokingly say the Tao of Barbara, but I actually mean it because I think about all the ways in which her story has inspired me. Mm-hmm. Um like I was saying earlier, she changed the beauty paradigm. You know, the world told her she was ugly. Remember I was saying before that I, I'm a religious, but I have my own spirituality, and it's in the Tao of Barbara. Mm-hmm. It's like the lessons of being so utterly knowing who the hell you are so young. She graduated high school early, bought a cot, and would stay at friends' houses in New York City because she just was like, I'm mm-hmm. going to make it. She was like 16 years old, and then by 19, she was a legend. What? That was how, how young she was? Yeah, she cast in Funny Girl at 19. Oh, I didn't know that. She was funny I thought she 20. was like early 20s, but wow. When she was on the Judy Garland show, I think she had just turned 20. She had already had a, a hit on Broadway and a hit album. What if you got to meet her? What would you I, say? I, 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 you wouldn't? Would no, you be I, able? I, no, I'd, I'd, I'd get verklempt and I wouldn't be able to talk to her. I mean, listen, I think there's something <laughs> magic. There's another thing about her is that she's not just a famous, but there's something magical about her, like Dolly Parton, like mm-hmm. Stevie Wonder, like Prince, that like 
there's something else going on that's some part of the, some part of the universe. And so I am not the only person who has a story about. Mm. I'm sure she hears it a lot. When I was a kid, and right, right voice, and I listened, and right, I had the and, and I didn't have a good mother, and your right, voice, and right, or I, women I, wanting right. to be. I'm sure everybody has that scene who loves beautiful, her. Yeah. And, so, and I I understand that. So yeah, that's what the dark wow. is. My is I think about the Holy Trinity, which is the mother, the daughter, and the Holy Jewess. Liza, Judy, Barbara. It's a whole, it's a whole spiritual. And then there's the minor saints. Not minor, but the other. Who are the minor Beth, saints? Diana, Cher. They're not minor, but they're. Dolly. Um, they're not the Dolly. They're, you know, they're the goddesses, but they're not the triumvirate. <laughs> Pat Benatar, whoever, but whoever Pat you ben, wanted to whoever be. Whoever is yeah. in your, your thing that like whoever, like I always have this, I have this theory that every gay man has at least one diva, past and present, that they are ride or die. Oh. And uh, I just happen to have all of them. <laughs> Guess what? A difficult mother, by the way. Barbara Streisand. Big time. Uh, I feel like I knew this. She's That's why Barbara has long nails, because she said, I want to be an actress. And I said, ugly girls can't be actresses. <gasps> You'll be a secretary like me. You'll work in the school system until you get married. And so she grew nails so she couldn't type. So she couldn't type. So I like, feel like I heard like this. Talismans. They're like They're like powerful for her. They're not just affectation. They're like, Oof. you know, the sauce of power. If I get her on the show, I'll, I'll call you. Thank you. <laughs> I will not respond. You, you will not respond. No. Thank you, Mitchell. Thank you, Dana, for having me. It was awesome. You're awesome. Yeah, yeah I'll take it. Take it. Take the W. The third season, which is crazy to say, of I Swear on My Mother's Grave podcast would never be possible without our editor, Amanda Mayo from Cassiopeia Studio. I also want to thank our music composer, Adam Ollendorf, our graphic designer and illustrator, Meredith Montgomery, our copywriter, Rachel Claff, and Tony Howell and Jonathan Freeland for all of their work on our beautiful website. And as always, thank you to Heather Bodie for her emotional, spiritual, social, physical, for, well, for all of the help over all of the years. Thank you. And all of you, thank you for listening, for subscribing, for reaching out, for telling all of your friends. I know that this club, this complicated, messy club, isn't fun to be in, but I'm so glad that you're here. I couldn't do this without you. So thank you for being a part of this community. And if you haven't signed up for our newsletter, please do so at our website, which is danablack.org. Not just because I want to sell you stuff, but because I want to keep talking to you and you talking to me. So go check that out. There's personal stories. I'll tell you about the season and you'll learn about some live retreats that we're curating one retreat at a time. So yeah, thanks for being here. I hope you'll come back. Will you come back? Don't leave me like my dead mom. You know what I mean? Come back, please. I'll talk to you soon. 